0: Matt, can I say a huge thank you to you for inviting me to come and speak at your church uh, weekend away. Thank you for inviting me to come this year. Thank you also for inviting me to come last year. Thank you for inviting me the year before. And thank you for inviting me the year before that. I feel a bit like the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Matt is the persistent widow who keeps asking, and I'm the unjust judge, who grumpily said no a number of times, but rejoiced in the end to do the right thing and say, yes, I'm thrilled to be with you. It's a great joy uh, for me. I don't know whether you know the story of the minister who one day noticed on his wife's side of the bed a box he'd never seen before. He said, darling, what's that box your side of the bed? She said, that's my personal, private box, please do not look inside. Well, she went out shopping later on in the morning and you can know exactly what he did. Up the stairs, into the bedroom, round her side of the bed, opened the box, And inside he found four eggs and 40 pounds. And he was scratching his head and his wife came home and he said, darling, I've done a dreadful thing. I've looked in the box your side of the bed. She said, that's your own stupid fault. I told you not to. But darling, why have you got four eggs in a box your side of the bed? She said, it's easy. Every time you preach a bad sermon, I put an egg in the box. Well, what's the 40 pounds for? Every time I get a dozen eggs, I sell them. (laughs) It is in your best interest to bow your heads and pray this is not an egg talk. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak. Thank you that you speak through your word. Will you grant us your Holy Spirit's help to understand your word? Would you help me to explain it carefully and interestingly and apply it relevantly? But would you be at work in all of us that we may respond to your word obediently. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you found Haggai? Yeah. Well done. I always use the backflip method myself. You, know, you flip through it and you just hope your eye alights on the two pages that Haggai has. It's the third to last book of the uh, Old uh, Testament. Now, national productivity has declined, the economy is stagnant, and spending power is at an all-time low. People have gone on strike, down tools, they're not turning up for work. And with the Pilkington glass strike about to happen, and with the banks making huge losses last year, it sounds like that could be the British economy. But in fact that was the situation in which Haggai was speaking. Haggai the prophet speaks, and it's the 29th of August, 520 BC. Verse 1 of the book dates the book precisely in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. Now the book opens with something of a surprise. Haggai's name is at the top, but we know virtually nothing about him at all. We don't know anything about his family, we don't know what he did for a living, we don't know whether he was a professional prophet, we don't know where he went to school, we don't know which university he did or didn't go to, Uh, we can't draw up a CV for him. He just arrives on the stage of the history of God's people in August 520 B.C., He leaves the stage on the 18th of December of the same year, at the end of chapter 2. His prophetic ministry, as far as we know, lasts a mere 17 weeks, within which he speaks a number of times. We know little about the prophet, but that date in verse 1 tells us a huge amount about the context. Now, I don't know how much you know of Old Testament history. Abraham's family become very big when they came out of slavery in Egypt, and they came to Mount Sinai, and it's there they were called a nation. The nation became led by kings. Saul was the first, David was the second, and Solomon was the third. As a result of Solomon's breaking every rule that God had given for a king, he'd only given four laws for a king, and Solomon broke them all. The most famous of which was Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines, uh, concubines. And, and as a result in judgment, the kingdom split into two. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Every king of the north was a scumbag. All 14 of them were were people who rebelled against God, institutionalising idolatry in the northern kingdom. And as God had warned that northern kingdom were exiled by the Assyrians in 722 BC, the southern kingdom had one or two better kings and it lasted slightly longer. But in 587... The southern kingdom of Judah was obliterated by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged it and they eventually destroyed the temple that signified God's dwelling amongst his people and he carted people off uh, into exile into Babylon. People like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But the prophet Jeremiah had said that exile in Babylon would only last 70 years. And true to his word, after 70 years the people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. Some 42,000 went back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and Cyrus, who was king of Persia, the new superpower who had taken over from the Babylonians, Cyrus issued a command under God's hands, the Lord moved Cyrus, pagan Cyrus as far as we know, the Lord moved Cyrus's heart, To command the people, when they went back to Jerusalem, to build a new temple in the city. A new temple to be built. It was God's command to the people as they returned. The book of Ezra told of the homecoming. And when they returned, this wasn't renovation, this wasn't repair, it wasn't restoration. It was a total rebuild, new build, of a temple in Jerusalem. And the work started. The site had been chosen, the plans agreed, the work began. But, but Ezra chapter 4 and verse 24, Ezra 4.24 tells us that in this time, 520 BC, the work had ground to a halt. The temple of God lay unfinished in Jerusalem and that's the situation into which Haggai speaks. And although he's speaking about a building project two and a half thousand years ago, we'll discover this morning that his message is absolutely contemporary. It's right up to date. Now if you've got a booklet for the weekend, we're on page seven. We've just done the introduction and we're going to notice two big themes in Haggai chapter one. First we're going to notice God-centred priorities. God-centred priorities. Haggai addresses the national and religious leaders, the governor and the high priest. So the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. The people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now what Haggai now is going to do is unmask that statement as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is going to be exposed the book of Ezra tells us that when the people started this rebuilding of a new temple that the people around about Jerusalem didn't want a strong new city in Jerusalem and so they hired, we're told, counsellors to go to Jerusalem and discourage the people from the rebuilding of a temple. We would call them spin doctors today. Spin doctors went to Jerusalem and discouraged the people from building. And they did stop building. Perhaps the people in Jerusalem spiritualized why they weren't at work in the temple. It would be insensitive to build a temple to Yahweh in the pluralist culture round about us. We don't want to hurt the feelings of the people round about us. Well, what Haggai, whatever their excuse, as they say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built, maybe Haggai does expose it as hypocrisy. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now there's a little bit of wordplay in the prophecy here. You can get it, I think, from the NIV translation. They're saying it's not time to build the Lord's house, but it is time for them to be living in their panelled houses. In other words, these people were looking after their own houses while God's house lay in ruins. To have a panelled house in the ancient world, the book of Jeremiah tells us, to have a panelled house, that, that, was, that was to have a house of comfort. This is a house with all the latest gizmos. It would be detached, it would have fitted kitchens, it would have solar panel roofs and a jacuzzi bath, I would have thought. They're, they're at work on their house, while God's house remains a ruin. Now don't mishear Haggai. He's not saying that the panelled house was wrong. Just like a fitted kitchen and solar panel roofs and jacuzzi baths are not wrong. He's just exposing the hypocrisy of their priorities. Of their house before God's house. So they spend their money at do it all B&Q and home base. And they spend their time putting up the wallpaper, redecorating the spare room and relaying the lawn. And doing those things before the thing that God had first commanded them to do. Indeed, I wonder whether you can smell the rat of the evil one here. How something that's in and of itself okay, a panelled house, but how it can usurp and become the priority above... The thing that God had first commanded them to do. Their first priority should have been rebuilding the temple. That was the one thing God had commanded them to do when they returned to Jerusalem. And yet something that's okay in and of itself has usurped that priority and taken first place. Their own comfort, their own houses, their own projects. It's a striking thing in the scriptures, isn't it? How something that is in and of itself even a good thing, can become the idol that usurps God's priority. Uh, Last year I read through Luke's Gospel. Very interesting. What are the two things in Luke's Gospel that stop people following Jesus as they should? Do you know what they are? Possessions, material stuff, money, and family. Interesting, family. Family. So obviously a good thing, so obviously something that good something that's good that God has given to us. But how family can become the idol that stops people putting Jesus first. Here it was a panelled house. Something in and of itself not wrong, but has become their priority rather than God's priority. And it might be worth us just pondering what that might be in our Experience. It's unlikely to be a panelled house, though it could be a home. It could be money, it could be family. Is there something that's just nudging what you know God has called on you to do? Is there something that's nudging that out of first place? The hypocrisy is exposed. Then, secondly, notice in these verses, the blessings withdrawn. Now there are there are outer layers. There's a little sandwich written in verses five through to eleven. First, verses five to seven, and then verses nine to eleven, and the meat in the middle is verse eight. So let's look at the outer layers of the sandwich. In verses five and seven, you'll notice that this is what the Lord Almighty says: "Give careful thought to your ways." And what they to give careful thought to is in the middle of verse six. So in the middle, you have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Five economic indicators of things not being good in Jerusalem. The fifth one, probably metaphoric. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Probably not literal, but money just seems to evaporate. Just seems to disappear. There never seems to be enough. Five economic indicators that they are to give careful thought to. And if they had given careful thought to those five economic indicators, it would have alerted to them to the fact that something was wrong. Because when God had called Israel as the holy nation at Mount Sinai, Moses had warned them that if they disobey God, you can read this in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28, God had warned them that if they disobey him, these kind of things would happen. These kind of things have happened and they should have been awakened, as they give careful thought, they should have been awakened to the fact, God is displeased with us. But they hadn't. And so notice in verse 9 to 11, Haggai spells it out for them. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, here's the reason for the harsh economic reality. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your hands. These people are in material need. Harvests have failed because God is is warning them that they have disobeyed him. Well, the remedy, the solution, is the command issued right in the middle there in verse 8. What should they do? Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. Get the plans back out. Buy the materials and start work. And why? So that God may be honoured and may take pleasure. Is that actually what caused them to get their priorities skewed is that what caused them to put their comfort above God was it that they hadn't twigged that building the temple would honour God and bring him pleasure was it that their mindset was not honour God first and that not having that mindset of honour God first meant that they'd allowed their priorities just to become skewed Honour God first. God, take pleasure. Well, what's the chief end of mankind now? What is the chief end of you existing in this world? Is it not to honour God and to bring him pleasure? To worship him and glorify him? The priority motivation hasn't changed. The reason we will be engaged in God's priorities is when our motivation, our mindset, our heart is turned towards honour God and bring him pleasure. What's the first prayer request that Jesus teaches the disciples? When I was a kid, I used to get that completely muddled. Our Father, who art in heaven, and I never understood the next, next bit, You see, my dad's name was Harold. (laughs) And when we learnt the Lord's Prayer at school, I could never work out why God wanted to have the same name as my dad, our father, who art in heaven, Harold, be thy name. I couldn't... That's really weird. Hallowed. Treated as holy. Honoured above all other things. And the name of God, of course, represents who he is. The first prayer request that Jesus teaches us to pray is about the honour and the glory of God. That is what ought to be at the very centre of our motivation. Now I'm going to encourage us in a few moments to think seriously about temple building. It's easy to make a congregation feel guilty about temple building. It's easy to lay guilt on people. But guilt is never a sufficient motivation to do things in the Christian life. It's got to be at the root of our being, at the heart of our being, that our desire is to honour God and glorify Him. Well, how are we to be about temple building today? Do you think we should all get on an easy jet plane? After you've made the complaints of not getting on the first time round. <laughs> Do you think you should get on an easy, plane, easy jet plane and fly to Jerusalem and build a temple there now? Are we about physical buildings now, do you think? Well, we're not about physical buildings. I hope we all know that that's the case. That yes, this second temple was eventually finished. It actually got destroyed in the 2nd century BC and a third temple was built the one that Jesus went into in John 2. Do you remember Jesus goes into the temple in John 2 and he changes turns t- out the money changers and the religious leaders say give us a sign that show us that shows us that you have authority to do that and Jesus says I will destroy this temple and in 3 days I will build a new one. And they didn't understand what he was talking about because he was talking about his death and resurrection because Jesus' death and resurrection makes a temple, a physical building obsolete because it is the presence of Jesus that is the temple so there are no special buildings anymore I don't know what kind of building you meet in at Christchurch Mayfair but the building we go to uh, on Sundays in Leyland is a 13th century building and it's been so unhelpfully architected It has been architected like an Old Testament temple. And people actually think that there's a more holy bit at the front of the building. They think that somehow God dwells at the front of the building, as if he's more special at the front of the building than he is anywhere else. That is just nonsense, isn't it? When my uh, eldest child was about six, we went around Chester Cathedral, and I said to Jonathan, I said, Hey, look, there's a table there at the front, there are some candles on it, why not go and blow them out? There was, there, was a, there was a red uh, a red uh, roped barrier to stop him going but he was small enough to crawl underneath and he went underneath, got to the table and a man in a big black cope, I think it was stormed towards us with, going puce with anger and he said what is that child doing? I said he's blowing out the candles he said what? I said look there's no problem with illumination in the building. <laughs> so we don't need the candles for light, do we? So, uh, so what do we use candles for now? We just, just for blowing out for fun, isn't it? So he's just having a bit of fun. This guy was incandescent with rage. <laughs> and he said, do you see that red light above the table? He said, that is the presence of the Lord Jesus. I said, well you can't have it both ways, mate. If Jesus is actually there and you think he's there, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And so you ought to welcome j- the children coming to the table. <laughs> it is a nonsense for you, isn't it? That God is, is present in physical buildings because of the building itself. What is the temple that God is on about now? It is the building of his kingdom. It's the building of the church. So the New Testament in 1 Peter can describe that when we come to Jesus we become living stones. We are the building blocks that are built into the place where God is going to be present for all eternity. So this morning he's with us by his spirit and one day when we're all gathered together we will be the place where God will dwell for all eternity. So if someone becomes a Christian, they become part of the temple building project. And nothing honours God more, and nothing pleases God more, than people becoming living stones. Part of the temple, or the kingdom, or the church, the place where God will dwell, Forever and ever and ever. Friends, if, if that is what pleases God, if that is what honours God, can you think of any priority more important than being engaged in that building project? As you come to your dinners in a couple of weeks' time, I hope that we will be motivated to invite people, as Arthur was telling us. I hope you'll be motivated to invite people, not out of guilt, but out of wanting to honour God and wanting Him to take pleasure. I hope that that will translate itself into you inviting people and you personally talking to people uh, about the Lord Jesus. God centred priorities. And yet it's so easy, isn't it, for other things that are good in and of themselves just to knock that priority away from the centre of things. To marginalise it and to push it away. And things that in and of themselves are okay. Even good things. God-centred priorities. Let's pray that God will enable us to be passionate about building the temple. God centred priorities, but over the page in the booklet, secondly, God empowered obedience. God empowered obedience. That's verses 12 through to 15. Verse 12 gives us a very encouraging response to the prophecy. The people obey. So then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel, Joshua son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. And because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Isn't that encouraging? The people obey, and notice that is worked out in the middle of verse 14. So they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God and on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius three and a half weeks after the prophecy has been spoken, encouraging that the people obey and the people work verse 12 and verse 14b and 15 but I wonder whether you notice that in the way that it's written Haggai deliberately has sandwiched in the middle of the people's response God's enabling almost certainly so that we read the two together if I'd been writing Haggai chapter 1 I'd have written verse 12 then I'd have gone straight to verse 14 and then verse 15 the people obey the people work but in the middle of the people obey and the people work notice what comes in the middle then Haggai the Lord's messenger gave the message of the Lord to the people I am with you declares the Lord I am with you. His presence. And then notice the little link word, his presence, is linked to his power. Notice the so, verse 14, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. God's presence and God's stirring, God's presence and God's power, and sandwiched right in the middle, ...of the people obeying and the people working. And almost certainly to connect the two into our mind... ...that the people working is because God is at work in them. The evidence of God at work in them is that they're at work for God. And you'll find that pattern all the way through the scriptures. When God is at work in us we are at work for him. And if we're going to be at work for him, it'll be because God's at work in us. Which means we need to call on God to be at work in us. And it was that partnership that Arthur was talking about in the interview. That in our temple building, we will only be at that work if God is at work in us. Indeed, can I suggest that Temple building in and of ourselves is impossible for us. We can't do it of ourselves. And I wonder whether you notice, the references are there in the book, I wonder whether you notice those two little things, God's presence and his power. And I wonder whether it rings any bells with the New Testament. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus, after his death and the resurrection, says to the disciples... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, therefore, go and temple build. Go and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. And the conclusion is, and I am with you. Notice the promise of the presence of Jesus comes in the context of us going and making disciples. The promise of the presence of Jesus is in the context of temple building. And isn't that encouraging for us? That the work God has called us to do for him, he empowers us to do. Because the presence of Jesus is actually his enabling. In Luke's kind of equivalent Great Commission that comes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Let me ask you, do you think the presence of Jesus and the empowering of the Spirit are two different things, or do you think they're just two ways of saying the same reality? I think it's the latter. I think the presence of Jesus and the power of the Spirit are the same reality in our experience. And Jesus has promised both for us in the context of temple building. Because temple building of ourselves is impossible. But the good news is that when God calls on us to do something that's impossible, His promise is that He will enable us to do it. And isn't that good news? Isn't that encouraging? So when you think of the list to keep Sharon happy and the people that you're going to invite because you want to honour God and him be pleased you can ask him to be at work in you to do it. And because it's something he's promised to do it will be something he will answer. No, not guaranteeing results of course but he will enable us to do the work that he's called on us to do. But it starts with whether we'll have God-centred priorities. Whether we'll be motivated by a desire to honour God and have him take pleasure. And at that at the core of our heart, translating itself into a placing our own priorities lower than the one God has given us. go and make disciples and when we go and make disciples the wonderful news and encouragement is that God will enable us to do it I am with you says Jesus and there's nothing bigger or better than that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you the presence of Jesus and the power of the Spirit enabling us to do the task that's set before us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the exciting privilege of being involved in temple building. Thank you that you have given us a part to play in the building of your people, the building of the place where you will dwell for all eternity. Heavenly Father, will you cause our hearts to be shaped by a desire to please you and to honour you? Will that translate itself, we pray, Heavenly Father, into priorities that have temple building at the heart? And thank you, Heavenly Father, for the reassurance that as we seek to obey you and work, your presence is with us, And your power enables us. Help us to trust that we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.